We're walking through the story of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Mark. Last time I was with you, we considered the first words Jesus speaks in the Gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Today, we come to the first thing Jesus does. Jesus is walking along beside the Sea of Galilee when he sees a couple of fishermen, Andrew and Peter. They're casting nets into the sea and follow me, he says. I'll teach you to fish for people. And they drop everything and follow. They walk on a bit further and Jesus sees another two fishermen, James and John, mending their nets. We're not told precisely what Jesus says to them. Maybe it's the same words, maybe not. But it's the same outcome. They too drop everything to follow him. We have noticed how in, pre in previous weeks how Mark is quite sparse in his details. And today's pretty much the same. Chances are there were plenty of other fishermen on that shore that day. Josephus tells us that at any time there were over 300 boats on the Sea of Galilee. But Mark doesn't seem interested in why Jesus chose these four. Or why they dropped everything and followed. John's Gospel suggests that Andrew at least had been a follower of John the Baptist. Mark doesn't mention that. Did the disciples know Jesus beforehand? Maybe. Mark doesn't tell us. Did the disciples like their work as fishermen? Were they any good at it? Somebody had hired men, which suggests his business was bigger than just a family thing. But other than that, we don't know. Did the two pairs of brothers get on before they met Jesus? Did they work for the same company? Were they bitter rivals? Again, don't know. All we're told is that Jesus calls them and they follow. But even in that short scene as we have it, there are a couple of things which would have left those reading the story for the first time scratching their head. So for a moment, if you can, I want you to visualise the scene or enter into it. And as you do, ask, what's wrong with this picture? Well, the first thing that's wrong is who's doing the calling. Later in the Gospel, on the night when Jesus is arrested, John tells us something interesting that Jesus says. You did not choose me. I chose you. Now, the context alone might well have suggested that this was simply a word of encouragement. Jesus has told them he's about to go away. He means he's about to be arrested and killed. And the disciples are understandably concerned. But Jesus wants them to know that this is not the end and that they will continue his work even after he's returned to his father. And there is something helpful about being given that vote of confidence. Have you ever been in that situation where you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure I could handle that. And then someone says, 
Do you think I'd have asked you if I didn't think you were up to the job? A vote of confidence like that, certainly from someone you trust or someone who knows what they're talking about, that can go a long way. And maybe there was some of that in what Jesus said. But there's more going on here. For it was not normal for a rabbi to issue that call to students, or not in that way anyway. It was normally for students or disciples to persuade a rabbi that they were up to the task of being a student. Not the other way around. Their education system was largely based around the Hebrew scriptures. In the first stage of the education, Beit Sefer, that lasted from around age six till ten. And during that time, they would be taught to memorize the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. If you're thinking, wow, that's tough. You're right. It was. Most of them couldn't hack it. Most never reached the end of that stage. Instead, they'd go into the family business or learn a trade or maybe they'd learn to look after a household. Only the really good ones would go on to, I suppose, secondary education or Beit Talmud. Those kids who made it that far, and they were in the minority, would learn to memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. From Joshua all the way to Malachi. And you can imagine, even in a culture like that, which relies far more on memory than we would, most of them would realise sooner or later, they're not going to manage it. So by 14, 15, they've given up, they've taken up a trade, they've gone into the family business, they're perhaps getting married or at least betrothed. But a few would make it and would want to take it further. So they would pick a rabbi and they would ask that rabbi to take them on as a disciple. They'd ask to be taught that rabbi's yoke or interpretation and application of the scriptures. And the rabbi would grill them on all sorts of aspects of the Torah, the prophets and so on to find out if this kid has what it takes. But rabbis had a reputation to keep up. They wouldn't just take on anybody. They only wanted to be associated with the very best. Most didn't pass that exam. But the odd one would stand out. And to them, the rabbi would say, come, follow me. And they would leave everything and follow the rabbi. So Jesus is walking along the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He sees a couple of sets of brothers and he issues the invitation, come, follow me. What's wrong with this picture? Well, a couple of things. One is that Jesus is doing the calling. They don't come seeking him out. He seeks them out. But more important is who he seeks out. As Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee, what are they doing? They're not following another rabbi. They're in the family trade. 
which means somewhere along the line, they've come to think or be told they didn't have what it takes to do what Jesus is calling them to do, to follow a rabbi. Now, let's not underestimate the disciples. They may not have been the most learned, but there is no reason to think that they were utterly unskilled either. And they were in a decent trade. But it's not the best of the best whom Jesus calls. It's not those right up at the top of the class. Jesus doesn't invite us into relationship because of our greatness. They were just ordinary people, but people prepared to commit themselves to a new way of life. Prepared to admit that with Jesus all sorts of new possibilities could emerge. That wasn't easy. It was a costly choice both to Jesus and to them. They were leaving behind a way of life with a fair degree of security to follow and learn what Jesus does. And for what? A calling that's ill-defined at best. When they drop everything to follow Jesus, they haven't a clue where this is headed. There's a call to worship we sometimes use. It says, this is the place and this is the time here and now God waits to break into our experience. To change our minds, to change our lives, to change our ways. To make us see the world and the whole of life in a new light. To fill us with hope, joy and certainty for the future. I had that call to worship at my ordination. Carol Murray, one of the college tutors uh, who trained me, preached on that occasion. And she spoke of how that call to worship had been used on another occasion when she had been invited to preach. Except there'd been a typo in the order of service, which spoke of them being filled with hope, joy and uncertainty. And Carol said that far from being unfortunate, it actually was quite appropriate and honest. The journey of faith can be filled with uncertainty. Oh, in some ways it would be great if faith meant having all the answers, that we could map out the whole journey. But it doesn't work like that. And it wasn't like that way for the, for the disciples. As we read along, they never really get it. Jesus will constantly confuse and perplex them. And discipleship isn't about having all the answers. It's about being aware that there is always more to discover and being open to the mystery. The journey of faith is very like that. Take the story of Abraham. He's called to go from your country, your people, your father's household. He's called to leave behind everything. The economic system he inhabits, the worldview he's inherited, the gods he's come to believe in. To do what? To go. Where? To a land I will show you. And we're not told why God calls Abram or why Abram goes. They both 
just do. Or there was another story in their tradition of a woman called Ruth. Ruth's mother-in-law uh, left Israel to go to Moab. That was how Ruth met her husband, Malon. But both Naomi and Ruth lose their husbands and Naomi decides to return home to Israel. And Ruth insists on going with her. Naomi tries to dissuade her. Ruth, Ruth, there's something wrong with this picture. Why would you want to come with me? Ruth was stepping into an unknown world, into a place where she would have no rights, no land, no resources. And yet, she insists on going. And we're never told why. Only at the very end of her story do we get a hint of where this is headed. When Ruth marries Boaz and then several generations later we come to David who becomes king. And in time, Jesus comes from that family line. But they weren't to know any of that. And that's what faith is like. It so rarely comes as a blinding flash. It so often starts with a what if? What if I did that? What if I went that way? What if I don't just accept that's how it is? It's not always easy to put words to it, to explain it, but something stirs within you. A sense that this, whatever this is, is the right way. Maybe a still, small voice prompting you. Come, follow me. And you don't have all the answers. The whole path isn't visible. Often we're given just enough light for the next step and we're invited to take that in the trust that the light will come for the step after that. And you will sometimes be confused and perplexed. You will sometimes falter and make mistakes. As I say, it was costly for Jesus as well as for them. The results of their efforts of following Jesus were, at best, mixed. Over the rest of Mark's Gospel, the disciples will rarely match that unwavering commitment of the first episode. Their performance is rarely stellar. But Jesus knew them through and through and still committed himself to them, as he does to us. Towards the end of last week, I sent out a picture in our WhatsApp group of all different sorts of potato with the headline, If you can do this with a potato, think what God can do with you. And it was timely for me. Sometimes in prayer, I think, God, you know the way you call me to follow you? Do you not know what's wrong with that picture? me and God says no what's wrong with that picture is how you're seeing yourself now come follow me and I ask the what if questions and I take the next step 
He isn't calling us for our greatness. He isn't looking for us to have all the answers. He's not calling us to save the world through heroic performance. He simply asks us to trust him and trust that he's committed himself to us. And he calls us to take the next step, wherever it leads, and to follow. Grace and peace.